From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Today's guest is David Reeves, president of OpenGov, a Silicon Valley company that offers cloud-based services to local governments so that they can achieve better performance and ultimately create better outcomes for the public. Or, put another way, they're applying the practices and standards developed by private industry to the public sector. And if you've ever waited two hours at the DMV to update the address on your driver's license, you'll know that it's not a minute too soon. David has a long career in the tech industry and has been fortunate to work alongside a number of very successful entrepreneurs and innovators during that time, gaining many valuable lessons from their experience. We discussed what he sees as the most critical trait for success in an entrepreneurial organization when he said, you need intellectual curiosity. Top-notch people have an innate intellectual curiosity about what they're doing. They are more capable of being adaptable and learning new things. We also touched on some of the unique challenges of pursuing innovation in a public-private partnership, the pros and cons of accelerators like Y Combinator, and the power of relationships in business and in life. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. David, welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. I know you received a degree in political science and history, and then you went on and built a career in sales and eventually became the president at OpenGov a few years ago. How did your sales leadership experience help you as you kind of got into that more operational president role? The story of how it evolved is that, you know, I went into, uh, I went into tech and ended up um, after kind of being at top sales leader in the uh, in the midwest where i grew up here in milwaukee uh, i ended up going to boston uh got promoted at, at a pretty prolific uh, software company called ptc and uh ended up getting a, a operational role a sales operational role. so i was able to really you know kind of perfected my craft as they say you learn more by teaching than actually doing sometimes and it was really allowed me to become a student of selling um, and I ended up then taking more and more responsibilities within the organization, running kind of all pre-sales, technical, you know, and a lot of aspects operationally got into, you know, more the, the finance business model, planning, things like that, which I wouldn't have had exposure to had I just stayed in sales. So that's kind of the long answer of how I kind of dovetailed a, a sales role into uh, really learning uh, the operations. So if you think about your your initial sales experience, you know, now you're in this much broader role. What do you think is the thing that helps you the most as someone who has a sales background? And what do you think was the biggest gap or thing you had to learn uh, when you became in a much more operational and broader leadership role? On the sales side, one of the things that uh, really helped me quite a bit is more reflection on what's working and what's not working. Uh, Pattern recognition. I found that a lot of sales uh, people, uh, you can work really hard and, you know, people talk about, you know, hustling and just making a lot of calls and having lots of customer meetings. What I think really helped me, and, and again, I, I really hearken back to those days in Boston where I had to train 1,200 people uh, in the field 
you know, pre-sales and sales uh, folks on how to sell is I had to do a lot of self-reflection and what had made me successful. So I became a bit of a student to kind of decompose what I did. And I ended up building my own kind of sales process of looking at some of my marquee wins and like, what did I do and how did I map that out? So I really ended up dissecting the, the sales process and, and figuring out pattern recognition of what worked and what didn't work. And that I think was a really key a characteristic uh, there. How about on the thing that you had to, you know, the biggest gap you found when you got yourself into that next leadership role, what was the thing that you didn't know you didn't know? You know, a little bit is empathy for the other roles in an organization. You know, when you're just out there driving revenue, you just want, you know, product and engineering to uh, go faster, build, you know, have more product, you know, kind of feed the field with, with things. And, you know, somebody had said this thing to me, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years ago, say, look, you could throw as many engineers as you want at this, David, but it, it'll take nine months for the, <laughs> for the baby to actually be born. So, you know, you know, just really understanding the complexity of product development and uh, that side of the business um, was, was really important, I think. So, you know, let me, let me step back for a second, because, you know, for those who are listening and they might not know what OpenGov does, can you maybe give us that quick thumbnail of what is the company and what is it your product is out there doing? Great. Well, it's a great question. So yeah, OpenGov is a, is a really exciting company. I'm, I'm really pleased to share kind of what we're doing because it is, it is quite uh, unique. It is the disruptive cloud technology within government. Just a little bit of background on how I ended up at OpenGov because it, it leads to why I'm there and what we do is I had been at a company called Zora for four years prior and helped that get to 100 million. And we ended up uh, having a lot of success and went IPO. I worked there for a, a CEO that was employee number nine at Salesforce. What's relevant there is that I wasn't looking to go to OpenGov or looking to leave Zora. I knew Zora was actually on a path to IPO and it was quite an exciting uh, run that I had there. I was thinking as one employee, you know, 95 or 100 or something up to, you know, 600 probably before I left. But I met, I met the CEO of OpenGov, uh, Zach Bookman, as well as I had met uh, with Mark Andreessen, who you probably know as uh, the person who invented the internet browser and, you know, founded Netscape. And he, you know, had, in his venture firm had uh, just put some money into the company. And I had talked to Mark. What he and Zach both described to me was a sea change that was ripe and needed for uh, the government. And what Zach described is that this government space is 15 years behind the private sector. And I thought, well, that seems a little bit extreme. I mean, we all know if we go to the DMV and some of the personal experiences we have in dealing with the government, that it's definitely not cutting edge uh, like, like private sector. So I, I was pretty bought in on that. But when I started to do my research on it and figured out what, what the opportunity was, it was actually kind of startling. The cloud, it was like first inning, not even first inning. It, it, the game hadn't even started in government. And so when I look at all the disruption that has happened in the world based on cloud technology, if you think of what Uber did to the taxi industry, it really became clear to me that the largest and most important industry probably in the world, because it affects all of our lives, was the government sector. And the fact that it, that it hadn't yet gone through the cloud uh, change was, was really uh, fascinating to me because you ask yourself a question, is there a world by which 
the cloud does not disrupt the government industry. And is there any logic there? I was like, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it did it to banking, it did it to healthcare. You know, how could this be? And so for me, you know, kind of having a little bit of the entrepreneurial instinct is like, this seems like an inevitable thing uh, because it's the government. It might take a little while longer than, uh, than we would like. But the truth of the matter is, it did seem like it, it ultimately would, would happen. And I thought that would be something that would be uh, to get out on the ground floor of that would be quite exciting. And that's what I did about five and a half years ago in, in joining OpenGov. And the promise there was, uh, is to bring the cloud, uh, the bring the cloud to government and to really create uh, more accountability and efficiency in the way governments operate and behave. Uh, ultimately, you know, not only providing better tools and resources so that the public sector employees had the benefit of the efficiencies like we get in private sector, but also ultimately then provide better service uh, to our, um, you know, to our citizens. You know, one of the things you were quoted saying at one point when you first uh, were announced as president in, in your current role, you said, I'm proud to help lead a company that is driving innovation in the public sector. You know, I've spent a lot of time studying innovation and thinking about, you know, what's really disruptive. And I'm curious, do you think that your product is innovative or does it actually make government more innovative? I think it's both. Um, and the reason why I, I can say that, you know, with with some certainty is that prior to OpenGov existing, government sector, tech sector, if you will, is very, very interesting. It is the most fragmented technology sector by far. And the reason being is because venture capital, as you know, fuels a lot of innovation in the world. And so that's why all these other industries have been able to be disrupted. Venture money, by and large, did not come in mass to the government tech sector. I think um, there's probably good reasons for that. One of it would be uh, there's long sales cycles with government. There's bureaucracy. Uh, there may be more risk adverse uh, buyers by design. And so there hasn't been a lot of investment in it. So what ended up happening prior to OpenGov over the last 30 years is a lot of points, government needs a lot of software to operate. I mean, if you think of the business of government and everything it does to help, uh, you know, it could be, you know, collect taxes, to take out the garbage, to fund schools. It is, it is a very complex enterprise. Uh, most people, if we were going to start our company, we wouldn't start to think on, let's take on everything from, you know, waste collection to healthcare. You know, there's just so many things uh, moving parts. So they need so much software. And so the way that this sector serviced that need is there was a lot of like ex-government people who was like, you know, let's say they're in the state of Maryland, like, well, Maryland really needs a tax package. Like let's build a, so there's all these custom one-off, like unique use case uh, software built. So a lot of mom and pop companies, right? And so what's happened is these were decent, you know, small mom and pop companies, but none of them went national. None of them moved to the cloud. None of them created innovation. There wasn't venture money coming in there. What did happen, though, is private equity companies would come in and maybe consolidate some of them and turn, you know, have more of like a holding company approach. But the focus was not at innovation because you have a captive customer in the government market that may keep your technology for 20 years. What OpenGov did is we kind of looked at it and said, like, look, there's a vacuum of innovation in this space. 
it's not just about cloud, but it's like, how do we make all the efficiencies happen in government? So we came at it with a very different uh, mindset. Our mindset was, do we want public sector workers that are in our governments to be in Excel spreadsheets all day and doing clerical work, or we want to provide cloud-based software tools to automate a lot of the business processes and have a lot more focus on using the data to make good decisions like we would expect in private sector, as opposed to spending all the time doing kind of clerical administrative work. Hopefully that kind of makes sense as to how we came at it in a completely innovative way, providing a different platform with the end user in mind. So, you know, faster to time to value, easier to deploy, and wanted more consumer grade technology, which was a, kind of a new and still, to be honest, other than OpenGov, it really is kind of a new concept. Yeah, what I was teasing out, I totally get the idea that you, you can bring them efficiencies and tools and best practices and scale it at a level that just wasn't happening before. I, I get that. What I was trying to tease out, though, is, is does it actually make the government itself more innovative? Because yeah. I definitely think it makes them efficient. But, you know, my sense is, is that innovation ultimately comes down to people and culture. And I think your tool can make it work better, but I'm not sure you can really affect how innovative the government is in doing what it's supposed to do. And I, maybe that's not even what you're intending to do there. No, I think that's a, I think that's a fair delineation. I apologize. I didn't, you know, hit the second part of your question there. The, the question, the answer is really, it, it depends on uh, the culture of that government. Um, you're absolutely right. You can put a new software tool that works better, but if there's not a desire to leverage it for efficiency, then, you know, it absolutely isn't going to move the needle. I do think, though, increasingly, there are innovative governments that are doing these things and providing innovative services uh, to their citizens. And I'll give you a great example. One of our fastest, if not our fastest growing product uh, this past year because of the pandemic has been our citizen services module, which is comprised of things like permitting, licensing and code enforcement. Well, amazingly, uh, you would not believe how many governments actually um, basically could not collect any new permitting revenue during the pandemic because it's, you know, a PDF on the website that you have to print out and mail it in or hand it in person to City Hall. Well, that becomes a bit of a problem when City Hall is closed. There's a good example where we are making our governments a lot more innovative. I mean, we've sold hundreds of governments this year, the ability to interact with their citizens online, that was a kind of not a priority prior. Yeah. And your example is awesome because it, it, it feeds on a theme that I've been talking about since the pandemic started, which is a crisis is an opportunity to get people to change. And my guess is, is that if it wasn't for the pandemic, you'd still have very few customers for some of those modules because they wouldn't have been forced to try it. And now that they've actually tried it, they would never go back, right? But I, I think you've, you've demonstrated what this one of these unique things that I try to help all companies think about, which is when something stops working, people are more open to trying something new. I'm curious, you know, so OpenGov, you know, you've talked about how it's this, you know, Silicon Valley venture-backed software company, which I think is really cool. Um, but you're working with mostly very non-Silicon Valley governments around the country. And so you're talking about radical 
culture differences. And I'm curious, what are some of the challenges related to this tension between, you know, your innovation, Silicon Valley tech company culture and government culture? What are some of the challenges you have to manage uh, in, in making that happen? Well, that's a fantastic question. And one that I recognized pretty early on is, is it an advantage or a disadvantage to say that you're a venture-backed Silicon Valley company? And so it was really interesting is when I joined the company, it was 100% Silicon Valley based. And one of the things that I recognize being out in the field and meeting with customers is that government is very local. Challenges, the nuances, the, the way tax revenues are generated, the, the, the ability to understand and know what's going on locally was really going to be the key to OpenGov's success. And one of the first things I did is I moved uh, a lot of the field uh, people that would have been you know, inside sales or things like that. I moved them out to the, to the field and started hiring on a regional basis because I wanted us to be closer to our customers. I wanted a salesperson to know that if they're in Ohio, that the death tax was just repealed last year and it's causing a real challenge for cities and municipalities and counties as to how they're going to backfill that funding. So now we're very geographically spread out. And in fact, our, our fastest growing office I'm proud of is my hometown here in Milwaukee. Yeah, I think you've just identified a really great piece of advice that uh, there's no reason not to leverage the technology to be able to have people be remote and other things. But at the end of the day, customer the customer business is fundamentally a local one. And that knowing them, living in the same town, sharing the same experiences, you can't replicate that. Uh, without having some, you know, at least some feet in those local markets. So I think it's a great, uh, a great piece of advice. You mentioned earlier that you had an opportunity to work alongside some of the really successful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and VCs. What's the one concept or idea or thing you've taken away from working with them? The main thing that I've learned is, uh, and this, I've been very fortunate in Silicon Valley is the amount of, of people that have vision, you know, is to, to find yourself aligned with visionaries and people who can see the future. And what I've learned is it's, it's not thinking about the next 12 months of the business results. It's people that are thinking at least five years out. I'm going to ask you a series of questions that get more into your personal mindset. And I want to see how you view certain aspects of both entrepreneurship and innovation. So, when you look at your career, do you believe that your success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? There's a bit of a combination, but I'd say by and large, it's been kind of avoiding uh, failure um, and avoiding failure by picking, making very good career selections on companies that I thought were, you know, as close to, there is no such thing as a sure thing, but as, as much of a sure thing as, as, as possible. So I think I've always really tried to make sure I was aligned with the right entrepreneurs, the right executive team, and that to de-risk it. So if you were going to describe how you approach problems, would you say you are more likely to think outside the box, try to build a better box, or set the box on fire and start all over? I guess I'm more of an outside-the-box person. The reason I wouldn't burn the box down is I always try to figure it out and say, like, what parts of the box were actually okay, because I always like to start from a position of strength. So if the box has some characteristics that, that work, I'll incorporate them into the, the new idea and think outside the box. But um, you know that's probably my mindset. 
when you're evaluating talent for your team, what are the one or two must have characteristics that you're looking for? One is intellectual curiosity. I really feel that top notch people have an innate intellectual curiosity. I think really smart people, um, have that and they're more capable of being adaptable and learning new things because they've kind of never got out of that being in university mode where they just want to learn. So that innate uh, sense of constant improvement. The second one, which I don't think you can replace is just drive and ambition. So when an obstacle happens or a problem happens where it didn't work out exactly as planned, they're going to still march through. That's why I tell people, you know, I want to hire people that are, are innately driven and have been successful at something that they've done. They've been top at something. It could be athletics. It, I don't care if they were a bartender in college, were they the best bartender? I want somebody who's determined to be the best and that ambitious rather than take somebody who might have the qualifications or experience, but doesn't seem to have that innate drive. So let me test that out then. How would you, let's say you're interviewing myself for a job to potentially be on your team. How would you try to get at that? What would you ask me? What would you do? What, what's kind of your approach to try to figure that out? Intellectual curiosity. One of the things I want to, I, I try to do is get them to explain problem that they personally uh, felt that they helped solve. And I make them kind of tell me, you know, give me the condition or the state of the issue before you got there. Don't just tell me the end result. Like I want them to decompose how they analytically thought about the problem. And if they can't really, really describe, and they just want to focus on the end result, like, oh, we you know, got this contract with, you know, this big company It's like, wait, good, but, but why? Like, and I, you know, I really try to peel back the onion. Do they even know why? Right. And if they do, and they are able to understand their behaviors and actions that contributed to the success in a more granular way, uh, those are the people I can tell are, are very thoughtful in the way they think about their day to day. That's some great suggestions. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I don't think I totally agree with your idea that intellectual curiosity and drive and ambition are must haves in any kind of role that you're really going to try to do something different, new and hard. But getting at that, it's not on their resume, right? You've got to get to know them at a different level. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, what advice would you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I think the key for aspiring entrepreneurs is to, as quickly as they can, really find mentors and things like that uh, that they can learn from. Uh, you know, one of the things in Silicon Valley that has been so fortunate is there's so many successful entrepreneurs. Um, you know, now that I've moved back to Milwaukee, I, have, I found myself, there's a few aspiring entrepreneurs and a lot of times they just, they don't have the mentorship to go to. They have the drive, the ambition, the, and the ideas, but you know, there's just not like five entrepreneurs on the block, you know, that they can kind of say, like, tell me about, you know, where I'm going to like fall into a ditch here. Right. And so the ability to really find a mentor and learn from someone who's kind of been there and done that before. Uh, and not be too proud to ask questions, to be humble and to say, hey, this is my idea. And this part I feel really strong about, but, you know, what am I missing? What am I, what, why will this not be successful? So, you know, somebody that's going to give critical feedback and not just uh, advocate how great you are and how great your idea is, um, I think is, is super helpful. Do you think that um, the mentorship is more important than the pieces are the things that we try to teach in the accelerator. Cause my sense is, is that we have lots of different accelerators, 
but it has much more to do with who they meet and the advice they get than the actual process they go through. And maybe I'm wrong there, but that's been my sense is that um, when I look at the successful ones, when you get into what really happened there, they, uh, they met some people that helped them think different to solve their problem. What do you think? Life is a journey that if you get to meet certain people on the way, they change your life. You know, I, I completely agree on that. So you have to find opportunities where you can, you know, get lucky, you know, and there, there's, you know, certain people that, you know, are big mentors or people in my lives that I was lucky to have met them. Had I, had I not met them, had I not been able to be part of, you know, something that they were involved in or something like that, I would have probably missed a lot of opportunities. So you have to kind of put yourself out there to find those people. But I agree with you. It's, it's kind of, you know, the old adage of, you know, it's not what you know, who you know. I mean, there is a, there's a lot of truth to that. And as much as some people, you know, don't like to believe that, it is. And so no matter what, uh, where you are, you know, relatively socioeconomically, you know, you need to figure out how can you better yourself, not through only just your own hard work. You do need uh, help along the way. We all do. And to be able to find people that you can learn from and grow from, no matter what your lot in life is, I think is uh is just the reality of what actually uh, ends up leading to success. So I'm curious, is there anything you wish we would have talked about or that uh, you want to mention before we wrap up here? You know, after the last 15 years, being in Silicon Valley is really how excited I am that despite the tragic year, you know, many people have had and and all the hardships with, with COVID, the ability to have the not just the tech world but everyone start to be able to be more remote working and things like that as much as i love an office culture and i'm in my office by myself right now as i usually am every day it it has created an amazing opportunity to take the concentration of innovation that was in silicon valley and disperse it throughout the country and the number one thing that i'm focused on outside my day-to-day duties of uh, at OpenGov is I'm really excited about building, you know, a tech community in Milwaukee that, you know, pre-pandemic probably wouldn't have been, you know, really all that possible. With the pandemic and with, you know, the Zoom technologies that, of that has done has opened it up where people could live where they want to. And the quality of life in Milwaukee is, is, is really significant. And um, not only is it my hometown, but it has all the natural uh, trappings that you would want. You know, it's a very livable city. So it has, you know, some of the, the nice things you'd want to get out of a Chicago and, and a San Francisco and a New York as far as arts, entertainment, you know, professional sports teams, et cetera. But, you know, people couldn't live here because, you know, some, even someone like myself, if you were going to be in tech, if you had a tech job and that went away, there wasn't another one, right? So you, you kind of had to make career moves and people had to move to places where they had uh, ability to have a little more permanence in, in, in their work. I recently, as you know, Chuck, uh, put a Milwaukee office in and I started hiring a lot of recent Marquette grads, hired a couple of two from USC, Washington, and I'm moving people to Milwaukee. And I think it's pretty exciting that um, people are discovering what a great city we have here in Milwaukee. And and now, you know, building an office here, we're going to be up to 20 uh, pretty soon and, you know, 30, 40, 50 people that we'll put here in Milwaukee. And it's a great opportunity. And the ability to bring some of Silicon Valley to the Midwest and to other places and harness all the talent that exists in these regions uh, where people now get to stay and live by their families. They, they don't have to do what I did and live away from my family 
for 20 years, which was really uh, painful. Um, they can kind of have their cake and eat it too, is to have an innovative culture in the city by which they grew up or lived and, and has family is, is really an exciting development. And I'm happy to um, be part of helping that uh, transformation here in Milwaukee. Well, David, it is great to have you back in Milwaukee and bringing some of that Silicon Valley mindset and culture. I, I love this idea that uh, we can participate in the economies we want to and live where we also want to. I think it's just an incredible opportunity that pre-pandemic probably wouldn't have happened. And it's another one of those little hidden gems that I think we're going to get out of all this. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight and being on the show. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to uh, when the pandemic has passed, actually getting together and maybe having a beer together in person. I can't wait, Chuck. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks to David for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his perspective on why candor is critical to business success. As he said, you need brutal honesty. If you aren't getting critical feedback and really self-analyzing, you will go out of business. You won't understand what the reality is. We want to thank all of you who have embraced the show and helped us grow our audience so far. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you'll tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd also like to note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.